Chapter thirty two of the Lamplighter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Lamplighter by Maria Susanna Cummins. Chapter thirty two. Know then that I have supported my pretensions to your hand in the way that best suited my character. Ivanhoe. Emily was not well this evening. It was often the case, lately, that headache, unwanted weariness, or a nervous shrinking from noise and excitement, sent her to her own room, and sometimes led her to seek her couch at an early hour. After Mrs. Graham and her nieces had gone downstairs to await Mr. Graham's pleasure and Mrs. Bruce's arrival, Gertrude returned to Emily, whom she had left only a short time before, and found her suffering more than usual from what she termed her troublesome head. She was easily induced to seek the only infallible cure, sleep, and Gertrude, seating herself on the bedside, as she was frequently in the habit of doing, bathed her temples until she fell into a quiet slumber. The noise of Mrs. Bruce's carriage, coming and going, seemed to disturb her a little, but in a few moments more she was so sound asleep that when Mr. and Mrs. Graham departed, the loud voice of the latter, giving her orders to one of the servants, did not startle her in the least. Gertrude sat some time longer without changing her position. Then, quietly rising, and arranging everything for the night, according to Emily's well-known wishes, she closed the door gently behind her, saw a book in her own room, and entering the cool and vacant parlour, seated herself at a table, to enjoy the now rare opportunity for perfect stillness and repose. Either her own thoughts, however, proved more interesting than the volume she held, or, it may be, the insects, attracted by the bright lamp, annoyed her, or the beauty of the evening won her observation, for she soon forsook her seat at the table, and going towards the open glass doors, placed herself near them, and leaning her head upon her hand, became absorbed in meditation. She had not long sat thus, when she heard a footstep in the room, and turning, saw Mr. Bruce beside her. She started, and exclaimed, "'Mr. Bruce, is it possible? I thought you had gone to the wedding.' "'No, there were greater attractions for me at home. "'Could you believe, Miss Gertrude, "'I should find any pleasure in a party "'which did not include yourself?' "'I certainly should not have the vanity "'to suppose the reverse,' replied Gertrude. "'I wish you had a little more vanity, Miss Gertrude. "'Perhaps then you would sometimes believe what I say.' "'I am glad you have the candor to acknowledge, Mr. Bruce, "'that without that requisite "'one would find it impossible to put faith "'in your fair speeches.' I acknowledge no such thing. I only say to you what any other girl but yourself would be willing enough to believe. But how shall I convince you that I am serious, and wish to be so understood? How shall I persuade you to converse freely with me, and no longer shun my society? By addressing me with simple truthfulness, and sparing me those words and attentions which I have endeavored to convince you are unacceptable to me, and unworthy of yourself." "'But I have a meaning, Gertrude, a deep meaning. "'I have been trying for several days to find an opportunity to tell you of my resolve, "'and you must listen to me now.' "'For he saw her change colour, and look anxious and uneasy. "'You must give me an answer at once, and one that will, I trust, be favourable to my wishes. "'You like plain speaking, and I will be plain enough, now that my mind is made up. "'My relatives and friends may talk and wonder, as much as they please, at my choosing a wife who has neither money nor family to boast of. But I have determined to defy them all, and offer, without hesitation, to share my prospects with you. After all, what is money good for, if it doesn't make a man independent to do as he pleases? And as to the world, I don't see but you can hold your head as high as anybody, Gertrude. So if you've no objection to make, 
We'll play at cross-purposes no longer, and consider the thing settled. And he endeavored to take her hand. But Gertrude drew back, the color flushed her cheeks, and her eyes glistened as she fixed them upon his face, with an expression of astonishment and pride that could not be mistaken. The calm, penetrating look of those dark eyes spoke volumes, and Mr. Bruce replied to their inquiring gaze in these words, "'I hope you are not displeased at my frankness.' "'With your frankness,' said Gertrude, calmly, "'no, that is a thing that never displeases me. But what have I unconsciously done to inspire you with so much confidence, that while you defend yourself for defying the wishes of your friends, you hardly give me a voice in the matter?' "'Nothing,' said Bruce, in an apologizing tone. "'But I thought you had laboured under the impression "'that I was disposed to trifle with your affections, "'and had therefore kept aloof, "'and maintained a distance towards me, "'which you would not have done "'had you known how much I was in earnest. "'But believe me, I only admired you the more "'for behaving with so much dignity. "'And if I have presumed upon your favour, "'you must forgive me. "'I shall be only too happy "'to receive a favourable answer from you.' The expression of wounded pride vanished from Gertrude's face. "'He knows no better,' thought she. "'I should pity his vanity and ignorance, and sympathize in his disappointment.' And, in disclaiming, with a positiveness which left no room for further self-deception, any interest in Mr. Bruce beyond that of an old acquaintance and sincere well-wisher, she nevertheless softened her refusal, by the choice of the mildest language, and terms the least likely to grieve or mortify him. She felt, as every true woman must under similar circumstances, that her gratitude and consideration were due to the man, who, however little she might esteem him, had paid her the highest honour, and though her regret in the matter was somewhat tempered by the thought of Kitty, and the strangeness of Mr. Bruce's conduct towards her, now rendered doubly inexplicable, she did not permit that reflection even to prevent her from maintaining the demeanour, not only of a perfect lady, but of one who, in giving pain to another, laments the necessity of doing so. She almost felt, however, as if her thoughtfulness for his feelings had been thrown away, when she perceived the spirit in which he received her refusal. "'Gertrude,' said he, "'you are either trifling with me or yourself. If you are still disposed to coquette with me, I desire to have it understood that I shall not humble myself to urge you further. But if, on the other hand, you are so far forgetful of your own interests as deliberately to refuse such a fortune of mine,' "'I think it's a pity you haven't got some friend to advise you. "'Such a chance doesn't occur every day, especially to poor schoolmistresses. "'And if you are so foolish as to overlook it, I'll venture to say you'll never have another.' "'Gertrude's old temper rose at this insulting language, beat and throbbed in her chafed spirit, "'and even betrayed itself in the tips of her fingers, "'which trembled as they rested on the table near where she stood, "'having risen as Mr. Bruce spoke.' but though this was an unlooked-for and unwanted rebellion of an old enemy. Her feelings had too long been under strict regulation to yield to the blast, however sudden, and she replied in a tone, which, though slightly agitated, was far from being angry. "'Allowing I could so far forget myself, Mr. Bruce, I would not do you such an injustice as to marry you for your fortune. I do not despise wealth, for I know the blessing it may often be, but my affections cannot be bought with gold.' and as she spoke she moved towards the door. "'Stay,' said Mr. Bruce, catching her hand. "'Listen to me one moment. Let me ask you one question. Are you jealous of my late attentions to another?' "'No,' answered Gertrude. "'But I confess I have not understood your motives.' 
"'Did you think,' asked he eagerly, "'that I cared for that silly kitty? "'Did you believe, for a moment, "'that I had any other desire "'than to show you that my devotion "'was acceptable elsewhere? "'No, upon my word, "'I never had the least particle of regard for her. "'My heart has been yours all the time, "'and I only danced attendance upon her "'in hopes to win a glance from you. "'An anxious glance, if might be. "'Oh, how often I have wished "'that you would show one quarter of the pleasure "'that she did in my society.' would blush and smile as she did, would look sad when I was dull, and laugh when I was merry, so that I might flatter myself, as I could in her case, that your heart was one. But as to loving her, pooh, Mrs. Grimm's poodle-dog might as well try to rival you as that soft. Stop, stop, exclaimed Gertrude, for my sake, if not for your own. Oh, how! She could say no more, but sinking into the nearest seat, burst into tears, and hiding her face in her hands, as had been her habit in childhood, wept without restraint. Mr. Bruce stood by in utter amazement. At last he approached her, and asked in a low voice, "'What is the matter? What have I done?' It was some minutes before she could reply to the question. Then, lifting her head, and tossing the hair from her forehead, she displayed features expressive only of the deepest grief, and said in broken accents, "'What have you done? Oh, how can you ask? She is gentle and amiable and affectionate.' She loves everybody and trusts everybody. You have deceived her, and I was the cause of it. Oh, how, how could you do it? A most disconcerted appearance did Ben present at her words, and hesitating was the tone in which he muttered, She will get over it. Get over what? said Gertrude. Her love for you? Perhaps so. I know not how deep it is. But think of her happy, trusting nature, and how it has been betrayed. Think how she believed your flattering words, and how hollow they were all the while. Think how her confidence has been abused, how that fatherless and motherless girl, who had a claim to the sympathy of all the world, has been taught a lesson of distrust. "'I didn't think you would take it so,' said Ben. "'How else could I view it?' asked Gertrude. "'Could you expect that such a course would win my respect?' "'You take it very seriously, Gertrude. Such flirtations are common.' "'I am sorry to hear it,' said Gertrude. "'To my mind, unversed in the ways of society,' It is a dreadful thing to trifle thus with a human heart. Whether Kitty loves you is not for me to say. But what opinion, alas, will she have of your sincerity? I think you're rather hard, Miss Gertrude, when it was my love for you that prompted my conduct. Perhaps I am, said Gertrude. It is not my place to censure. I speak only from the impulse of my heart. One orphan girl's warm defense of another is but natural. Perhaps she views the thing lightly, and does not need an advocate. "'But, oh, Mr. Bruce, do not think so meanly of my sex "'as to believe that one woman's heart "'can be won to love and reverence "'by the author of another's betrayal. "'She were less than woman "'who could be so false to her sense of right and honor. "'Betrayal? Nonsense. You are very high-flown. "'So much so, Mr. Bruce, that half an hour ago "'I could have wept with you "'that you should have bestowed your affection "'where it met with no requital. And if now I weep for the sake of her, whose ears have listened to false professions, and whose peace has, to say the least, been threatened on my account, you should attribute it to the fact that my sympathies have not been exhausted by contact with the world. A short silence ensued. Ben went a step or two towards the door, then stopped, came back, and said, After all, Gertrude Flint, I believe the time will come when your notions will grow less romantic, and you will look back to this night and wish you had acted differently. "'You will find out in time that this is a world where people must look out for themselves.' Immediately upon this remark he left the room, and Gertrude heard him shut the hall door with a loud bang as he went out.
A moment after, the silence that ensued was disturbed by a slight sound, which seemed to proceed from the deep recess in the window. Gertrude started, and as she went towards the spot, heard distinctly a smothered sob. She lifted a drapiered curtain, and there, upon the wide window-seat, her head bent over and buried in the cushions, and her little slender form distorted into a strange and forlorn attitude, such as might be seen in a grieved child, sat, or rather crouched, poor Kitty Ray. The crumpled folds of her white crepe dress, her withered wreath, which had half fallen from her head and hung drooping on her shoulders, her disordered hair, and her little hand clinging to a thick cord connected with the window-curtain, all added to the appearance of extreme distress. "'Kitty!' cried Gertrude, at once recognizing her, although her face was hid. At the sound of her voice, Kitty sprung suddenly from her recumbent posture, threw herself into Gertrude's arms, laid her head upon her shoulder, and though she did not, could not weep, shook and trembled with an agitation which was perfectly uncontrollable. Her hand, which grasped Gertrude's, was fearfully cold. Her eyes seemed fixed, and occasionally, at intervals, the same hysterical sound which had at first betrayed her in her hiding-place alarmed her young protector, to whom she clung, as if seized with sudden fear. Gertrude supported her to a seat, and then, folding the slight form to her bosom, chafed the cold hands, and again and again kissing the rigid lips, succeeded at last in restoring her to something like composure. For an hour she lay thus, receiving Gertrude's caresses with evident pleasure, and now and then returning them convulsively, but speaking no word, and making no noise. Gertrude, with the truest judgment and delicacy, refrained from asking questions, or recurring to a conversation, the whole of which had been thus overheard and comprehended. But patiently waiting until Kitty grew more quiet and calm, prepared for her a soothing draught, and then, finding her completely prostrated, both in mind and body, passed her arm around her waist, guided her upstairs, and without the ceremony of an invitation, took her into her own room, where, if she proved wakeful, she would be spared the wonder and scrutiny of Isabel. Still clinging to Gertrude, the poor girl, to whose relief tears came at last, sobbed herself to sleep, and all her sufferings were for a time forgotten in that oblivion in which childhood and youth find a temporary rest and often a healing balm to pain. It was otherwise, however, with Gertrude, who, though nearly of the same age as Kitty, had seen too much trouble, experienced too much care, to enjoy, in times of disquiet, the privilege of sinking easily to repose. She felt under the necessity, too, of remaining awake until Isabel's return, that she might inform her what had become of Kitty, whom she would be sure to miss from the room which they occupied in common. She seated herself, therefore, at the window, to watch for her return, and was pained to observe that Kitty tossed restlessly on her pillows, and occasionally muttered in her sleep, as if distressed by uneasy dreams. It was past midnight when Mrs. Graham and her niece returned home, and Gertrude went immediately to inform the latter that her cousin was asleep in her room. The noise of the carriages, however, had awakened the sleeper, and when Gertrude returned she was rubbing her eyes, and trying to collect her thoughts. Suddenly the recollection of the scene of the evening flashed upon her, and with a deep sigh she exclaimed, "'Oh, Gertrude, I have been dreaming of Mr. Bruce. Should you have thought he would have treated me so?' "'No, I should not,' said Gertrude. "'But I wouldn't dream about him, Kitty, nor think of him any more. We will both go to sleep and forget him.' "'It is different for you,' said Kitty, with simplicity. "'He loves you, and you do not care for him. But I—I—' I, Here her feelings overpowered her. 
and she buried her face in the pillow. Gertrude approached, laid her hand kindly upon the head of the poor girl, and finished the sentence for her. "'You have such a large heart, Kitty, that he found some place there, perhaps. But it is too good a heart to be shared by the mean and base. You must think no more of him. He is not worthy of your regard.' "'I can't help it,' said Kitty. "'I am silly, just as he said.' "'No, you are not,' said Gertrude, encouragingly. "'And you must prove it to him.' "'How?' "'Let him see that, with all her softness, Kitty Ray is strong and brave, "'that she has ceased to believe his flattery, "'and values his professions at just what they are worth. "'Will you help me, Gertrude? "'You are my best friend. "'You took my part, and told him how wicked he had been to me. "'May I come to you for comfort, "'when I can't make believe happy any longer to him, "'and my aunt and Isabel?' "'Gertrude's fervent embrace was assurance enough "'of her cooperation and sympathy.' "'You will be as bright and happy as ever in a few weeks,' said she. "'You will soon cease to care for a person whom you no longer respect.' Kitty disclaimed the possibility of ever being happy again. But Gertrude, though herself a novice in the ways of the human heart, was much more sanguine and hopeful. She saw that Kitty's violent outburst of sobs and tears was like a child's impetuous grief, and suspected that the deepest recesses of her nature were safe and unendangered by the storm.' She felt a deep compassion for her, however, and many fears, lest she would be wanting in sufficient strength of mind to behave with dignity and womanly pride in her future intercourse with Mr. Bruce, and would also expose herself to the ridicule of Isabel, and the contempt of her aunt, by betraying in her looks and behavior her recent trying and mortifying experience. Fortunately, the first-mentioned trial was spared her, by Mr. Bruce's immediately absenting himself from the house and in the course of a few days leaving home for the remainder of the summer and as this circumstance involved both his own and mrs graham's family in doubt and wonder as to the cause of his sudden departure kitty's outward trials consisted chiefly in the continued and repeated questionings from her aunt and cousin to which she was incessantly exposed as to her share in this sudden and unlooked-for occurrence had she refused him had she quarrelled with him and why kitty denied that she had done either but she was not believed, and the affair remained a strange and interesting mystery. Both Mrs. Graham and Isabel were aware that Kitty's refusing at the last moment to attend the wedding Livy was owing to her having accidentally learned, just before the carriage drove to the door, that Mr. Bruce was not to be of the party. And as they wrung from her the confession that he had passed a part of the evening at the house, they came to the very natural conclusion that some misunderstanding had arisen between the supposed lovers. Isabel was too well acquainted with Kitty's sentiments to believe she had voluntarily relinquished an admirer who had evidently been highly prized, and she also saw that the sensitive girl winced under every allusion to the deserter. One would have thought, then, that common affection and delicacy would have taught her to forbear any reference to the painful subject. But this was not the case. She made Mr. Bruce and his strange disappearance her almost constant topic— and on occasion of the slightest difference or disagreement arising between herself and Kitty, she silenced and distressed the latter by some pointed and cutting sarcasm relative to her late love affair. Kitty would then seek refuge with Gertrude, relate her trials, and claim her sympathy, and she not only found in her a friendly listener to her woes, but invariably acquired in her society greater strength and cheerfulness than she could elsewhere rally to her aid so that she became gradually dependent upon her for the only peace she enjoyed. And Gertrude, who felt a sincere interest in the girl who had been on her account subjected to such cruel deception, 
and whose drooping spirits and pensive countenance spoke touchingly of her inner sorrow, spared no pains to enliven her sadness, divert her thoughts, and win her to those occupations and amusements in which she herself had often found a relief from praying care and vexation. A large proportion of her time was necessarily devoted to her dearest and best friend Emily, but there was nothing exclusive in Emily's nature. When not suffering from those bodily afflictions to which she was subject, she was ever ready to extend a cordial welcome to all visitors who could find pleasure or benefit from her society, and even the wild and thoughtless Fanny never felt herself an intruder in Emily's premises. So sweet was the smile with which she was greeted, so forbearing the indulgence which was awarded to her waywardness. It can hardly be supposed, then, that Kitty would be excluded from her hospitality, especially after Emily, with a truly wonderful perception, became aware that she was less gay and happy than formerly, and had therefore an additional claim upon her kindness. Many a time, when Isabel had been tantalizing and wounding Kitty beyond what her patience could endure, and Gertrude had been vainly sought elsewhere, a little figure would present itself at the half-open door of Miss Graham's room, and was sure to hear the sweetest of voices saying from within, "'I hear you, Kitty. Come in, my dear. We shall be glad of your pleasant company.' And once there, seated by the side of Gertrude, learning from her some little art in needlework, listening to an agreeable book, or Emily's more agreeable conversation, Kitty passed hours which were never forgotten, so peaceful were they, so serene, so totally unlike any she had ever spent before. Nor did they fail to leave a lasting impression upon her, for the benefit of her mind and heart. None could live in familiar intercourse with Emily, listen to her words, observe the radiance of her heavenly smile, and breathe in the pure atmosphere that environed her very being, and not carry away with them the love of virtue and holiness, if not something of their essence. She was so unselfish, so patient, notwithstanding her privations, that Kitty would have been ashamed to repine in her presence and there was a contagious cheerfulness ever pervading her apartment, which, in spite of Kitty's recent cause of unhappiness, often led her to forget herself and break into her natural tone of buoyancy and glee. As week after week passed away, and her sufferings and regrets, which at first were so vehement and severe, began to wear off as rapidly as such hurricane sorrows are apt to do, and the process of cure went on silently and unconsciously. Another work at the same time progressed, to her equally salutary and important. In her constant intercourse with the pure heart and superior mind of Emily, and her still more familiar intimacy with one who had sat at her feet and learned of her, Kitty imbibed an elevation of thought and a worthiness of aim quite foreign to her quondam character. The foolish child, whose heart was ensnared by the flatteries of Mr. Bruce, learned, partly through the example and precepts of her new counsellors and friends, and partly through her own bitter experience, the vanity and emptiness of the food thus administered to her mind, and resolving, for the first time in her life, to cultivate and cherish her immortal powers, she now developed the first germs of her better nature, which expanding in later years, and through other influences, transformed the gay, fluttering, vain child of fashion into the useful, estimable, and lovely woman. End of chapter 32